Hello, and welcome to this focus episode of How We're Wired. My name is Eva Higginbotham. I have a PhD in neuroscience, and I'm the producer of this series for the Bertarelli Foundation. These focus episodes are a chance for us to dig into more fascinating stories of our brains, how they work, and how scientists are studying them. In episode five, we looked at the neuroscience of movement, how our brains act like conductors of a vast muscular orchestra, translating our thoughts into actions. And this is going on all the time, even when we're just casually going for a walk, as I was this morning. I'm lucky enough to live right near a river, and even on a misty, windy day like today, I'm almost guaranteed to come across people who use the river for sport. I'm talking about rowers, the type of rowers who sit lined up in narrow boats and race across the water. You might have watched them compete in the Olympics or in the famous Oxford and Cambridge boat race. Though, as someone who grew up in Oxford but got my PhD in Cambridge, I'm never quite sure who I'm supposed to support. Regardless, when it comes to rowers physically, there's a certain body type you tend to see. Long limbs, so that you've got leverage, and big lungs because of the aerobic capacity required. That's Francis Horton, who knows a thing or two about rowing. I used to be an Olympic rower. I went to five Olympic Games, Sydney, Athens, Beijing, London and Rio. And I won silver medals in Athens, Beijing and, and Rio. A couple of world records along the way and a few world titles. Francis's rowing career spanned a mighty 21 years. So it's fair to say she spent a lot of time thinking about how to make her body move. The blades are in the water, your arms are holding the handle, and then you push your legs down and you move the boat past a static point, as it were, because you're, you're fixed in the water. But in reality, rowing goes way beyond the physical. Rowing is a very absorbing sport mentally because you're concentrating so hard on the skill element as well as being challenged physically, aerobically, so you're totally immersed. And, and when people talk about, you know, meditating or, or mindfulness and that absolute engagement in a, in a task and finding flow, rowing is a, is a really good example of a sport that can kind of hook you into that. And it's not just rowing. Although big muscles and a low resting heart rate is a requirement for many sports, how you perform in competition is also heavily influenced by how you're using your brain. So... That's what we're exploring this week. From how to cope with the intense pressure of millions watching you perform to the cognitive skills required to excel on the field. We're looking at the neuroscience of elite sport. Many successful sports people start their training young. And that was the case for Francis too. Right, so funnily enough, I wasn't sporty at all when I was younger. My older sister was really good at all the mainstream things like swimming, running, jumping, tennis. And I wanted to be just as good as her. But every time I turned up to a P class, I was quite a disappointment. So I thought, I'm going to try the only thing she hasn't tried. And the only thing she hadn't tried and wasn't already really good at was rowing. So I tried when I was about 11 and I just loved being on a river. It was a vehicle for me to make friends and really to get moving because... I'm six. I'm now six foot four, but I was, you know, I was almost six foot when I was twelve. So, you know, I, I wasn't a great mover, and so it was a really nice way to get me active. 
And by about the age of 13, I was really hooked. And I could see people on you know, Olympic podiums and I thought that's what I want to do. So when we think of, when we normal people think of sport, we spend a lot of time thinking about the body and how we move our body and having big muscles and all, all sorts of things. But I'm wondering if you could talk to me about what your relationship with your brain is like when you're rowing. So one of the things I learned is that my, my instinctive response to pressure would be, and a desire to go faster in the moment, would be to try and pull on my arms more, for example. Um, but in rowing, you want to keep your arms straight. And so, for example, that's something you're constantly battling with when you're in the moment of the race and you want to pull harder or you want to heave it, you want to do something with your hands. That's something you have to override and really have a contract with yourself of knowing what makes the boat go fast and sticking to it, despite the pattern in your head saying, no, do something different. That's one example. And then I think the constant battle of you're in a lot of physical pain and you need to convince yourself to carry on doing what you're doing, even though it's completely not what your body wants to do. Yeah, it sounds a lot about control then almost top-down control like telling yourself keep your arms straight keep your arms straight you know don't not giving in to some of the sort of physiological impulses almost absolutely and what I would do is try and have three things in my brain so the three most important things that I absolutely had to stick to and it's an absolutely controlling your mind to stick to those things and this is another sort of phrase I use quite a lot is concentration versus thinking so make sure you're concentrating and stay concentrating on the things that you've chosen and avoid thinking like thinking how could I go faster thinking what might happen so coming back to competition then when you're you know you've gotten in the boat you're ready to start what's going through your mind are you looking at the environment around you or are you getting more internalized and thinking about yourself so you're hyper hyper aware and sensitive of just I mean I would say everything you know the bigger picture to the tiny details the what am I doing here what life choices have I made you know my last race I knew my career that you know how my career would be defined would completely hung on the, the outcome of the race and at the same time you can see you know a little ripple in the front of a piece of lycra in front of you you can smell so the coaches would clean the boats with vinegar and all you can smell is this really strong vinegar and you're thinking oh fish and chips when am I going to eat next eat fish and chips no no don't think about that I'm back to the Olympic <laughs> final you know you've got waves coming over you're then you're analyzing okay so what difference does this make to the pattern we've decided to row? Does this change the way we've decided to race it? You've got thousands of thoughts going on from the useful to the really not useful. And it's floating and, and letting some just pass through and knowing which ones you need to act on so that you can come back in cleanly to, right, okay, no matter what, this is what I'm going to concentrate on until the pain takes over and that's all, that's all you're trying to shut out. When it comes to high-level sport, the differences between a sports person's body and, well, mine, is fairly obvious at first glance. But what about what's going on in their brains? Are there differences there too? I mean, the brain clearly has to take in a vast amount of information in a complex and rapidly changing display. That's Professor Mark Williams. He's a research scientist at the Institute of Human and Machine Cognition in Florida, and he's spent the last 30 years picking apart the way elite athletes use their brains. 
And it has to make sense of that environment to perceive and to anticipate what's going to happen next and then to formulate an appropriate decision and an appropriate course of action. I mean, when you consider, for instance, a cricket batter or a baseball hitter, then they've really got fractions of a second to pick up the relevant information from the bowler and pitcher and from the early portion of ball flight in order to make those types of judgments. So the brain is quite amazing in that regard in so much as it can process a huge amount of information in a very rapid period of time. Well, certainly the expert brain anyway. On that then, when we say the expert brain, is there a big difference Mm -hmm. then between a pro player and the average person playing on a Sunday? Are their brains any different? It's not so much that their brains are different. So there are relatively few, if any, what you might call hardware factors. By way of example, expert cricket batters do not have better eyesight than any other sports person or even the average person on the street for that matter. What happens, of course, is through prolonged exposure and experience in the sport, experts develop knowledge structures in long-term memory that allow them to process and to perceive information a lot more efficiently and effectively than their less skilled counterparts. So the difference perhaps is more in the sense that um, whilst potentially experts and less expert batters might look at the same things, the expert batter sees different things and is able to perceive things quicker and more efficiently. So that sounds actually like practice. Do we know how much practice is required to get just really, really good at that sort of decision making? So clearly these skills develop over time. And of course, that prolonged engagement leads to these adaptations to memory and human function. Actually, there's evidence to suggest that even at relatively young ages, skilled sort of eight-year-old soccer players, football players, for instance, are able to um, pick up and process information and anticipate better than eight-year-old less skilled counterparts. But clearly, these abilities do tend to develop with age and more specifically with practice and exposure to the sports domain. And perhaps to to some degree, actually, coming back to perceptual cognitive skills like anticipation and decision-making again, uh, these are generally skills that don't decline too much with age, so that in the sense perhaps in a lot of sports where athletes get past their peak from a physical, physiological perspective – Uh, Often their game intelligence skills, if you like, continue to improve so that they're able to actually compensate for potentially a a slight drop in physical ability by this continued development of game intelligence skills. So they become smarter rather than necessarily fitter as they get older. Those perceptual cognitive skills Mark's describing include things like visual perception and anticipation, how quickly you can process what's going on on the field. And that's something Mark and other scientists study in the lab. And the typical approach that has been employed here is to create maybe a filmed simulation of the task. So, for instance, you might film an opponent uh, taking some serves in tennis and then you play back those images to the observer who then have to anticipate where the serve is going to go. Typically what we do is we record things like gaze data. So we have a system that we put on the head, which is not much bigger than a pair of sunglasses, 
that allows us to identify uh, where people are fixating their gaze. Sometimes we actually put um, systems on the head that allow us to measure brain activity. Essentially, what this body of research work has identified these range of different perceptual stroke cognitive skills. So I'll give you an illustration of some of them. One is the fact that experts are much better at picking up information from the postural orientation and body shape of an opponent. So even before the tennis player strikes the serve, skilled opponents will be, be able to read the likely serve destination based on these postural cues that are available pre-ball fight impact. Uh, we also know that Experts in team sports are able to identify patterns and familiarity in the way that um, teammates and opponents move around the field so that if they can identify a pattern of play early on, then they'll be able to predict what uh, the end product of that pattern would be before it actually evolves. And as I implied earlier, we also know that experts use the visual system more efficiently to process information. So they tend to fixate gaze on more informative areas. They tend to use more effective search rates and search strategies. So fixating back and forth between relevant sources of information in a much more effective manner. So these skills have arisen through to adaptations in long-term memory, which have created better software, going back to the hardware software factor, and more effective processing system for um, taking in the information and ascertaining what will happen next. So that's really amazing. So it means that if you took like a football player, an expert football player, and plonked them in the middle of a game, they would just be yeah. able to read the situation much faster of what was sort of going on, what's likely to happen next than me, for example. <laughs> I'm sure that's the case. Yes. Is that a conscious thing um, or have they sort of just learned those patterns well, so well? I mean, some of it will be conscious. So, for instance, in that scenario, the player will probably be scanning around the field quite extensively. So they'll be consciously aware of themselves doing that, for sure. Other things will be subconscious. You know, they probably won't necessarily be aware of the cues or the clues that they're picking up from the body shape of an opponent. They probably won't be consciously aware either of the fact that they're probably making subconscious predictions all the time as to what you might term likely event probabilities, i.e. What, what pass is the player in possession of the ball now most likely to make? So some of it is conscious and some of it is subconscious, but clearly what looks simple on the television screen uh, when these skilled performers execute these tasks is actually immensely complex in reality. And thinking about that, it's obviously if you're playing sport at an elite level, you might have you know, thousands, if not millions of people watching you as you take the final shot. And that must be just incredibly stressful. Is there any effect of sort of stress and pressure on cognition in that sort of case? Yes. I mean, there's um, quite substantive evidence to demonstrate that stress in all its various guises changes the way that we process information. So for instance, it changes the way that we move the eyes around the display. You know, either under pressure, we either have more fixations of short duration so that if you like, we're, we're perhaps hypervigilant, not really showing, knowing where to look. So we look everywhere, a little bit like a deer in headlights, so to speak, or that we may, for instance, 
not move the eyes enough. So we might get some aspect of peripheral narrowing that we just focus on a single spot rather than, as would be ideal, scanning more broadly relative to that particular task scenario. Uh, there's also evidence to suggest that we prioritize different sources of information differently when stressed. So, for instance, I spoke previously about how football players pick up information from the body shape of an opponent to help them try and anticipate the direction of pass, whilst at the same time they're also trying to pick up higher-level cognitive information around the patterns and structures that are involved. Well, the latter source of information, the postural orientation there, probably demands lower cognitive effort to process and the higher-level pattern recognition work. So it may well be that under stress, and because stress uses a cognitive capacity or attentional resources, that we may take the path of least resistance, so to speak, and put more emphasis on picking up the postural cues rather than focus on um, more difficult cognitive skills like pattern recognition. I mean, these stressors not only exist in sport, of course. I mean, we're doing some interesting work with um, warfighters, how they perform in simulated combat scenarios under different types of stress. And I guess if you think about it, not only do you have the threat of life of death in a warfighter situation, but often these guys are functioning in cold or hot environments. You know, they've had limited sleep. They're often quite hungry. And uh, all of these different stressors interact, uh, use up processing capacity, and make the challenge of perceiving and deciding uh, what to do in these scenarios very, very difficult. So I suppose there are also interesting questions that we're working on there as well in terms of given we know pressure impacts performance in these ways, well, how can we better train athletes, warfighters, law enforcement officers and firefighters to deal with the stressors that they're likely to face in undertaking their professional work so that they're better prepared uh, to cope in those kinds of environments? It reminds me of doing mock tests before exams or a practice talk in front of your boss before a big meeting. Those experiences don't just help you prepare because you're practising the content, but also because you're training your brain to cope with the stress. And, as you'd expect, training for Olympians is already pretty intense. So we would generally do three sessions a day. So that would be you go out on the water for just short of two hours, challengingly aerobic session, I'd say. Come in, uh, have some food, your second breakfast. Your second session would either be shorter and more intense on the water, so that might be an hour, an hour and a, an hour and a quarter on the water. We would do that or we'd do it on a rowing machine. And then the third session would be lifting weights. We would generally train seven days a week with one day off a month. Oh, my gosh. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. What did you do on your, day, on your one day a month off? see friends um <laughs> refuel relax and catch up on a lot of things that needed to be done <laughs> for olympians though all that training leads up to a few crucial moments you know you've got years and years and years of training so you've got thousands of days thousands and thousands of hours of training and then you've got the last 24 hours if you don't get the last 24 hours right then all that training's not going to come to fruition. So what sorts of things matter in those 24 hours? I imagine a lot of dealing with your own thoughts of, of how to cope with that level of pressure. Yeah, dealing with your own thoughts, knowing what works for you. So for example, I knew that my I was in the right mindset to perform 
when I could say, I don't know what's going to happen, but I know what I'm going to do. Mm. So I was addressing the the anxiety about, well, what's going to happen? Are we going to win? You know, am I, am I going to be a failure? You know, all those inevitable, totally normal nervous thoughts. I acknowledge they're there. But to be able to say, but I know what I'm going to do. So I know the pattern that I'm going to row. I know what I'm going to have in my head when the traffic light's red. And you know that what your chosen thoughts are, which you've which I've practiced and practiced and tested out in training. So it's knowing yourself. And then every situation I've been in with crews leading up to a, a big race, everyone will freak out in their own way. <laughs> you know, that's completely normal. Some people become really adamant that they're, you know, this is what we need to do. Some people become very quiet. Some people become quite hyper. But it's just knowing each other well enough to travel through that, support where required, and and just leaving it where required because it's just a natural outlet of, you know, being in a high pressure situation. So knowing yourself well and knowing other people really well in that situation, knowing what to do. Being able to manage our emotions is something we're all familiar with, whether on the pitch or in a meeting at the office. And Sometimes we all need a little support. Oh, you can see her, can you? I can see her, yeah. And a nice monkey in the oh, background. That's, yeah, that's Mike. Yeah, I take Mike into schools, into rugby clubs and Formula One places, yeah. He's, oh, uh, perfect. Yeah, he's he's my monkey. Anyway, let's... Uh... <laughs> that's Don McPherson and his monkey, Mike. And over the years, he's been a very popular means of support for elite athletes, from Formula One drivers to premiership footballers. And he's currently the mind coach in residence for Bath Rugby. So at rugby, there are all sorts of coaches, technical coaches, and in golf and in motor racing. They have their own uh, bodily uh, coaching techniques. I'm all about coaching the mind. And what does that actually mean? What does it mean to coach the mind? It means to offer people in sport or anywhere a menu of brain tuning tools that will fit their requirements for whatever is bothering them. A little bit like a plumber coming to your house. The plumber will be told there's a leak and will knock on the door and will have, well, in my, my day, a big black bag that would open like this. And inside will be a selection of tools. And if you asked him why he's brought so many tools, he'd say, I know you've got a leak, but I don't know which tool will fix it. So a leak in the brain that might be leaking confidence We'll need a tool to um, fix the leak. Don spends a lot of time thinking about the mind, and in particular, the constantly chattering voice that many of us have in our heads. The Buddhists beautifully describe the voice in the head as resembling a restless monkey swinging from tree to tree in a jungle aimlessly, chattering and commentating on every part of your life. You don't want to do that. You want to do this now. You don't want to do that. The monkey is our conscious mind, our chattering voice, life's filter. What if that happens? The planner, the sat-nav, the number cruncher, the worrier, the what-if specialist. We all have a subconscious mind where the real Eva lives. The person you are now that I see before me, or at least on my screen, the real Eva, the inner Eva is the boss. And for Don, he uses a range of tools with the athletes he coaches to help them calm the monkey brain. I cannot stress the importance enough of the value of correct breathing. Many, many people, even marathon runners, Eva, that I've worked with, do not breathe properly because stress turns us into upside down breathers where we think we should be breathing from our chest like a sergeant major, you know, 
there you are, that's how I breathe. But the diaphragm isn't working. And uh, you need the diaphragm working when you're under pressure. That gives you a feeling of uh, being in control of your emotions. It's a good feeling. Even if your heart beats 170, if you're in control of your breath, you have a good chance of still being in control of your motor skills. It's a fact, hugely underrated. Another tool would be what I call mind the monkey. By that, I mean, tune into your own monkey chatter, close to competition or whatever your challenge is. Listen to the monkey without becoming obsessed in almost a paternal, gentle way. Just listen, you know, like always saying to yourself, what's on your mind? You know, I've introduced you to Mike, my monkey, and often I might, uh, at my age, it might sound childish, but we're all big kids. I might ask Mike, what's on your mind? I'm asking myself, Mm. I'm trying to deal with any potential mind-body disconnect that Mike might cause if he's too worried about what if I mess it up. Mm. whatever the challenge is. So if you tune into your own monkey chatter, your own inner voice, if you don't like the monkey concept, and start to adjust what you clearly recognize are inappropriate thoughts, negative or otherwise, then you can start to adjust it. Say, no, I don't, I don't need to feel that way. You have to chip away at it. It can take a little time. If that monkey's been in charge of your eating habits, or in my case, my Japanese whiskey drinking habits for too long, then the monkey may have quite a grip on you, in which case you're going to have to work at it for some time. You can't just click your fingers and suddenly be the coolest dude on the pitch. But you can do what Muhammad Ali said and act as if you are. Mm. Fake it till you make it. So there's remembering your breathing. Breathe in. Breathe out. Minding the monkey. I've decided to call mine Frank. And then Don has a third tool in his toolkit that he recommends very highly. You know, very successful athletes that I've worked with have all employed mental rehearsal. It's called visualisation. If we go back to caveman days, thousands of years ago, caves were found in France not that long ago, where there were pictures of poor old wildebeests right at the entrance or the exit of the cave of these poor beasts with spears sticking out of them. In other words... The last thing that Fred Flintstone saw when he left the cave, when when Mrs. Flintstone, whose name I've forgotten, said, go and get some food, we're starving. Well, he didn't want to leave the warmth of the cave to go out and be attacked by a saber-toothed tiger any time soon, did he? So if, if the last thing he saw as he left the cave was visions, strong visions of success, it at least gave him a feeling that there's a decent chance he might bump into a wildebeest with his spear rather than have to run like hell away from a saber-toothed tiger. So it's a good thing to have these positive visions with you all the way up to giving that speech, to taking your driving test. It's really interesting, this idea of mental rehearsal, because I think actually we're often doing that, but in the most negative light possible. When you're worried about an event coming up or the driving test, like you say, you might spend lots of time imagining it going horribly wrong. Oh, they're going to say this to me and I'm going to drive through that traffic light or whatever it is. We actually spend a lot of time doing mental rehearsal in an anxious, not helpful, negative way that creates anxiety. So partly it's just flipping that energy from this really negative way of predicting the future to a positive way. So the monkey mind in particular is always scanning for things that might be a threat to you. And to scan, the monkey's got to think, what if that happens? But I have a strict rule. 
in sport, I only allow the people I work with to have visions of success. And having an external object, like Mike the monkey, can be really helpful too. The people I've worked with often go and buy smaller monkeys and the one racing driver put one, put one on the back seat of his car because his monkey reminded me of a backseat driver, you know. Mm. Watch out, there's a corner coming, you're going too fast. Are you in the right gear? Brake, brake, brake. So they often buy smaller monkeys. But um, this mic is big, obviously hairy, uh, smiley face, big eyes, and looking at me now going, you talk too much, let us, <laughs> let Eva speak. And another really useful trick that I've honestly found myself doing ever since speaking with Don is checking in with yourself regularly. Ask yourself two questions. And the two questions are, where am I and what time is it? And the answer to those two questions will always be the same. Where am I? I'm here. Wherever you are in the world, I'm here. And the second question, what time is it? The answer will always be now. Wherever you are, you're here now. It's a very good way of grounding yourself. And I once bought a watch, took me ages to source it from New York for um, a well-known rugby player who used this a lot and found it very, very powerful. When he went on the pitch to play big matches, he would say, where am I? What time is it? And I got the players to start asking each other this, so it spread, it became quite funny. But I bought him a watch. All it had on the, on the minutes, all it had was now, 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 all the way around the clock face. It would always say the time is now. And I quite like that. I love the idea of saying to yourself, I'm here and this is now, as a way of becoming grounded. And for Francis, the visualisation and focus on an ultimate goal was also really important. The day in, day out of the training was often really tough. And I would say that the, you know, I had a vision and a goal that I wanted to try and make it to five games. And that was what kept putting the keys in the ignition. You know, 99% of me thought I can't carry on, mm. but 1% of me had an eye on this goal. And that's what, you know, got me walking out the door and putting the keys in the ignition. So many things go into it. And I think different people articulate it in different ways. Yeah. But I think that's the special thing about team sport. You're all in, in individuals aiming for one goal. And finally then, what lessons might you have to share for, for other people that you've learned from competing for as long as you did at the level that you did? On one level, I'd say the training and talent make you capable, but delivery on the day comes down to human factors. Hmm. Knowing yourself, knowing each other, and knowing the impact of pressure. And then a very simple one, but really hard to do, I'd say, give yourself permission to believe in yourself. Because mm. so often um, I see athletes who can't quite let themselves believe that they can do it. And I say, it's not arrogance. It's not really anything to do with confidence. Just, just take the leap of faith and give yourself permission to believe in yourself. And let's use that as a start point. Thanks so much to Francis Horton, Don McPherson and Mark Williams for speaking to me this week. That's it for this week's Focus episode. If you found Francis's insights helpful, she's written a book called Learnings from Five Olympic Games, where she details lessons from her amazing career. And Don McPherson has also written a book called How to Master Your Monkey Mind if you want to try different techniques for coping with your very own mic. We're back in two weeks' time as we explore the neuroscience of autism. I'm Eva Higginbotham, and this is How We're Wired. 
How We're Wired is a fresh air production for the Bertarelli Foundation. It's produced by me, Eva Higginbotham, and the executive producers are Neil Cowling and Michaela Hallam. Follow now for free so you never miss an episode.